following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Man, what a blessing to be the saints together as we both hear the word in prayer and reading in the scriptures, and then to be singing and speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, this is a huge blessing and a part of our own sanctification. Uh, we thank God for, think about this, like the simple grace of him using us assembling together to build us to be more like Jesus Christ. It's in a picture, yes, obviously, of assembling and being together, but it also strengthens the bond that we have in Jesus Christ and to one another. And so we're thankful for this. Let's go ahead and turn your Bibles to the index so you can find where Obadiah is in your Bible. Uh, go ahead and look that up. I'm not sure where it's at in your Bible. We're going to be at Obadiah today. Um, that's not my joke. I wish it was. I, I love that, though, that uh, maybe we don't know exactly where this is, and that's okay. Um, let me start out with uh, a little bit of announcements that you're turning there because it'll take a little bit of time to get there. That's fine. We have a members meeting tonight, and those of you who are members at Cornerstone Bible Church and Covenant Membership together, I want to give you an encouragement and a duty. You need to go on the realm and read the testimonies of those who are potential members coming on. This is our important joy and duty to do for one another. We read and listen to the testimonies of those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and we together with one another affirm that this is true and call them to live as if it's the truth that Jesus Christ is the Lord and the Messiah of the universe. And so I'd ask you guys to go ahead and look on there, think it through. If you have either questions or uh, any struggles at all, please give a call to me or Jordan or any of the elders so that we can talk it through. We want to be active in this process to consider the confession of those who want to join at Cornerstone Bible Church in the church and joyfully be able to move forward and welcome them into membership. So I charge you with that. It doesn't take long. It's all right there for you to look through, to consider. And then I just ask you to pray for them as well. We're excited about the truth that God has saved other people, not just us. He's working in the world to make more people worshipers of God. So there's your little assignment. Make sure you take a look and do that together. Before I get in, let's go ahead and take a minute and uh, start with a word of prayer together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful this morning that you have risen from the grave. Lord, you both took our sin at the cross, but Lord, you gave us life when you conquered the grave. And Lord, we have a sure hope that we too will be risen, resurrected one day as you are the first fruits of our resurrection. Well, this is not because we're so great, but Lord, because of your glory and plan and will that you will work out. We thank you, God, for your grace and ask that as we are here, look forward to the kingdom, that your will would be done and that your, your, your people would be like you. So teach us this morning as we open your word that we would understand who you are, that we respond to who you are and worship and obedience. We thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, today we are starting with another introduction. So if you're here last week, you know we actually did an introduction to the minor prophets, or the prophets last week. But this week we're going to do an introduction to the book of Obadiah, to the prophecy of Obadiah. Now you may ask the question, why are we starting a, a new sermon series then with two introductions? Last week, again, it was the prophets in general. This one's more in particular, the one for Obadiah. Maybe then you can, for a moment, 
relate with me to a particular scenario. Um, many times in my life, I, I really want to read the whole Bible, all the parts of it. Uh, the ones that are normal, like, like people go on and read all the time, and those that don't get kind of read, they get a lot of cobwebs on them, and people don't read at all. We want to do that, and we understand that this is going to take some sort of a reading plan. Maybe it's a maybe do the whole Bible in a year plan, or Bible in two-year plan, or maybe it's like try to do it all in 90 days, or some sort of form that we would take seriously reading the Scriptures and, and discipline ourselves to do that well. Now, if you're, no, if you're like me, you've done this before, but I'm going through Genesis, and I'm following along with the narratives, and I'm in the Gospels, and I'm following along with Jesus, and pretty much the whole New Testament, I understand what's going on, and I'm, and I'm pretty much there. But then we get to, in the Pentateuch, we get some of the genealogies, and things start to slow down, and then we start getting uh, descriptions of the tabernacle, and uh, all these little pieces that they're going to make, and then we get to start talking about like the way that things work out between those that are supposed to go to the promised land, and some of this is prophecy, and we're not sure exactly where we're at, but we're following along the story fine. And then we eventually get to a place like Judges, and there's some wild, crazy stories in Judges, and that's interesting. So we're following along there. We know what's going on. Then we get to the kings and the prophets of Israel, their ups and downs. We're following them along. But then we get to, like, some of the wisdom literature, and then we get to the prophets, and we are like, oh, no, I'm not really sure what's going on here. Not, not that we can't understand it. We can read but all of a sudden we're like, what, what part are we in? How, how does this work together? I want to make sure that I understand. But when we get to some of these places, we're just wondering what's going on. Now, it's our conviction, and probably yours as well, that the Bible is clear, and the Bible is sufficient, and the Bible is able for humble people like me and you to understand and therefore to be able to respond in obedience. We, we believe this. It's a good thing. But sometimes we, we, we feel overwhelmed when we come to the text. So we're just sitting down and plop it open and we start in one of these places that we're not sure about. We read a couple verses in, then we read the whole chapter, then we try to read two chapters and we're like, I, I am overwhelmed at trying to know exactly how all this works together. And usually, if we're honest, we feel like failures if we jumped into a section of Scripture that we're unfamiliar with and we realize that if we were to read that text of Scripture in our family devotions and our children were to ask us questions about this, about what's going on, we might not have the first clue as to how to explain to them all that's happening in some of these passages. Many of us want to obviously be able to jump right in, read our English Bibles, and, and kind of know exactly what's going on. And this is right. After all, we're Christians and it's the Bible, right? We should be able to understand it. We do these introductions. Uh, again, last week we did one and then we'll do them this week. We do these introduction sermons because we need help. If I'm honest, I need help. If you'd asked me a couple months ago to tell you about Obadiah, I could have told you a few things, but not much. I needed to read and think and read some history and start to understand the context and take apart the language and all that stuff. I had to do work. And we understand that it's difficult and we need the help. There's no shame in admitting that we need to be taught so that we can understand the context as we get into a specific passage. This is a good grace of God that he would provide teachers and pastors and theologians to think these things through and help us in our own work in the text. So as we did, as we said, as I said last week, one of the reasons I chose to do Obadiah was simply because I think all of us struggle a little bit to understand the prophets, to take them seriously enough to not just reference them at Christmas time, but to actually make sure that we think them through and understand the message of these prophets, both of Israel and of Judah. 
And so it's one of my goals as your brother and pastor to make us better readers of the Bible, that you would be serious about opening God's Word and understanding it, taking it seriously and be able to put some of these pieces together. You, of course, come here on a Sunday morning ready to receive some sort of good meal. What I mean by that is you, you set my time aside that I would sit down in my study, work hard to understand, and to give you a sermon to understand the text. But, and hopefully that's a good meal, hopefully we can continue to grow in this way. That's not enough. You need to regularly also be eating. We need to go home and understand that we can open the Bible, think it through, and be able to respond by praying and meditating and going through in obedience to the Word, not only in this time on a Sunday morning. And so we want to provide this introduction and these introduction sermons so that you have an approach to the book. When you open up Opadiah, you have some idea of what's going on before you start reading it. And in that line of thought, I, I just want to say a quick word about commentaries and Bible study helps. They are good. You should use them. They're excellent material that is, is helpful for us. And to ignore some of these teachers and theologians and pastors and historians who have gone before us and done such good work, to ignore that would be foolish. And I would also say proud. It's right for us to learn from those who have gone before. I almost always recommend people to have a good Bible commentary or maybe a Bible study help along the way, maybe a study Bible that would help them as they entered into passages that they're not familiar with. Bible study helps and commentaries are good, but they aren't the bread and butter. They aren't the main thing. They're always written by people who aren't inspired, right? And so what I'm saying is this. We need to use these resources. They get us started and they give us context to help us, but they are only what help. They are helps. To understand and interpret the Bible properly, we need to be reading the rest of the Bible. It helps us to understand each and every one of these passages. Now, that may sound obvious, but it's so true. For instance, this is not about guilt or making you feel bad. How many of you were able to or took the time to go back to read Deuteronomy 4 or Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28 through 32 or anything from First and Second Kings? I say this because last, last week I was making the point that the prophets are speaking and writing during the time of the kings and that they are covenant enforcement mediators. In other words, all of what they're doing is responding to what's happening in their obedience or disobedience to the law. And this is helpful to understand the prophets. You can and should certainly read some commentaries. Some good Bible study helps. But we must be reading the kings. We must be reading the covenant blessings and punishments that we find in the Pentateuch. These things will help us understand the rest of the Scripture. So to understand and interpret the Bible properly, we need to regularly be reading the rest of the Bible. This is why I always would encourage, when you're reading the Bible, to study small sections, maybe a few verses, maybe you are in depth in one place regularly, and also reading large sections of Scripture, maybe three chapters at a time, so that you're regularly covering large area in Scripture, but also taking it seriously to try to understand small pieces and how they work together for our own lives. I desire that we would learn our history, that we would understand our context and how these different books fit together, and that we would be wise readers of God's revealed Word, so that we can know Him and grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. 
So, you know, maybe it's, it's never hit you that the best way to understand and interpret the Bible is to read and to try to really understand the Bible. This is just a normal, everyday pastoral exhortation from a brother. We should be reading our Bibles. It is God's word to us. He has literally spoken, and it's been written for us to know him. And I'm not saying either, because sometimes we believe this, don't we? Uh, if we sit down for 20 minutes, start of the day, and we have our coffee next to us, and we got a highlighter out, and if we just spend 20 minutes reading the words over and over again, that somehow the magic happens and we become more holy. Maybe, maybe I'm alone in this, but I, I, I tend towards this thinking sometimes instead of engaging and understanding it. It is work. I recognize that. The things that slow me down in my own Bible reading are things, the fact that it's difficult sometimes. It takes a lot of time. And to be honest, often I am lazy. I, I, I assume that I'm not alone, at least not in all three of those things, that maybe we struggle with some of those things together. But I want to encourage you that this is life and bread and good for us so that we might know and love and grow in Jesus Christ so that you can rightly interpret, so that you can grow in the knowledge of God and in a humble response to him. This is what we should regularly be feasting on. So my first application, even before I get into any of this, is that we would regularly be reading our Bibles and growing in this Christian discipline of knowing God through his word. Now, I admit that that takes work, as we've already said. And I'm asking you then, during this time, to pay attention, to ask questions, and to talk about this with one another. Now, that might mean over coffee. That might mean over giving someone a phone call and talking about it. That might mean in your community groups we are talking about these things. It might mean in your own homes after the dinner time where you sit down and maybe you have family devotions together where you talk through these things and work at them. Frankly, this is something that we should regularly be doing in our homes and in our church. It's the process of discipling one another. It's not complex. Uh, we, we want to look out for the spiritual growth of one another, doing one another spiritual good. And the regular Christian disciplines of praying and reading and sharing our lives with one another, both encouraging and confessing to one another, these are the means that God uses to grow us in Christ together. So I just ask you then, it's a pretty simple question, are you looking to help one another grow? Maybe those who are more mature in Christ, have you brought along maybe another brother or sister and spent time saying, hey, let's grow together. I want to I see you grow in Jesus Christ. Let's read the Bible together or have some discussions and then pray together about these things. Those of you that are maybe newer in Christ, maybe just are struggling along the way, have you want to, gone to someone who's more mature and asked them, hey, would, would you disciple me? Would you walk with me in these things so that I could grow in Jesus Christ? We want this to be a regular part of who we are, that we would be actively discipling one another. It is going to be absolutely impossible for me and the elders to be able to do all of that. It must be a culture from the rest of us consistently going back and forth to reading the scriptures together and thinking wisely about them. See, I have an amen right here. That's what I'm talking about. We need to grow in this area. And the prophets are a section of scripture that we as disciples can't ignore. And we shouldn't. It's a good thing. We want to grow in this way. So our time in Obadiah will be the first of many attempts to hear the prophets and to work with them to grow an understanding of the prophets and their prophecies, and then also in a particular section of Scripture that gives us real messages for us today. I mean, it's, a, it's astounding, because what we're talking about is all those years back, we, Christians, are growing thousands of years ago from what they have said. 
that we can actually pick them up and grow as Christians because God spoke through these men. So, without further ado, this is what I want to do today. Uh, I want to give you an introduction to the, the prophecy of Obadiah. And I'm not going to be able to get everything the commentary would give you, but I do want to give you a few things. I want to give you the date of this prophecy. I want to give you the author and the audience of this prophecy. I want to talk about the historical background between Jacob and Esau. And then lastly, I want to talk about some of the main themes that we're going to see here. So that's date, author and audience, historical background, and the main themes. Uh, As we start into the next few verses next week, we'll talk a little about the structure and how to read the book. And eventually, the purpose will naturally emerge as we cover these verses together. So for today, though, let's start this way. We'll start out with the date. The question we're asking then is, what is the date of this prophecy? Or when was this written down or spoken to the nation of Judah? Uh, There are two main views. And you're going to have to stick with me here. I want you to to work at this. Because this is going to be like reading that first section before you end up getting into the actual text. This is going to sound, in a sense, very much technical. But you've got to stay with me so we can get to here. Uh, There are two main views. It's either sometime in the 9th century B.C., or sometime in the 6th century B.C. Now, what would be the difference here? There are many different factors to consider. And, by the way, there's several opinions among scholars as well. But the one thing that they can all agree with is that they're not certain. (laughs) They're not exactly sure when this happened. We don't have the prophet telling us when he wrote this specifically. And so we have to do the work to understand. We ask questions like, does the prophet tell us in his writing when he did this? Or is there a standing tradition that makes a claim for the writing of this book? Or does its place in the canon, like in its order in the books of Scripture, does that tell us anything about when this was written? Does the style of the writing match up with any other section in Scripture? And how could that help us? What historical events that we know about could possibly line up with the clues that we find in the text here? That's what we're using kind of to do our best to understand when this is written and what's going on around it. Well, the prophet doesn't tell us when he's writing as far as like going in the, right in the first sense telling us, I'm writing in the 6th century B.C. He doesn't start us off that way. That doesn't help us. And there isn't a specific Christian or Jewish tradition that tells us when exactly this happened. It is placed as the fourth prophet in the list of the 12. Remember we talked about the 12 last time we got together, the minor prophets. It's within that, he's the fourth prophet in the list there. Hosea, Amos, Jonah, and Micah, right there at the beginning, are all known to be very early prophets. What I mean by that is all the way back in the ninth century, and maybe some in the eighth a little bit as well, B.C. While Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah belong to the seventh century B.C., And then Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are post-exilic. So we're talking about 6th century and later. So the question that I'm I'm trying to get us to is, does it matter how the chronology is set up? Or are those 12 minor prophets actually set up chronologically? Does that tell us anything? The problem is Joel and Obadiah are unknown as to where they actually fit. And there's not anything else that tells us that particularly these are supposed to be set up chronologically. If it were so... Obadiah and Joel would definitely be in the early section, probably the 9th century B.C. However, the problem is there's nothing that tells us, like I said before, that chronology matters. A lot of times it seems like it seems to be clumped in the the canon for how they relate to one another. So that doesn't necessarily help us get any further either. The writing style and the words, though, how about that? How does that help us? They do match up 
in a couple different ways. One that's most stark, Obadiah 1 through 9 is very close to if you were to look at Jeremiah 49, 7 through 16. If you looked at Jeremiah 49, 7 through 16, you'd see some of the exact same phrases and the ideas that are used there. It's almost as if Obadiah were quoting Jeremiah. Or is it that Jeremiah was quoting Obadiah? Or is it that they both know some sort of oral tradition that has been around and they're both using it? Do, do you see how we get speculative real quick here? That, that's good, and we need to have that conversation sometimes, and that's what scholars spend a lot of time doing. For, to cut to the chase, there's not a clear reason why it would be one or another. There may be a priority on one side and other reasons why one would be more, you know, maybe more plausible than the other, but we're not certain. The work is important. Scholars have labored in trying to do this, but at the end, it's difficult for us to say what's to help us with this date. So probably, then, the most helpful way for us to think about this is to consider the things that Obadiah speaks about, what he is talking about, the clues that he gives us within the book, and then help us understand the history of Israel and Judah and therefore try to come with some idea of when this is happening. Probably the most helpful area is verses 11 through 14. And again, once we get there, we're going to talk about this. We're going to see here that these verses seem to be an echo of the fate of Judah during the Babylonian invasion. In other words, when Judah goes off to exile, we see this and it seems to ma match up exactly what's going on. The history telling of the time is not perfect, and we know that. But it's clear that Edom was not captured, taken away, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar II exiled Judah to their land, to Babylon. They were left in their own land. I'm talking about Edom again. They were left there, and kind of they were some sort of a vassal king, a kingship that was still under Babylon, the superpower, but they didn't exile them away. And find, in, in fact, we find out that other things happened later, and especially in Obadiah, that are pointing to the fact that they did the exact opposite to, of help, but hurt uh, the people of Judah. Plus, the text of Obadiah has a similar ring to it, at least four other Old Testament passages that all come from the same time period, the strong designation of the 6th century B.C. You have Psalm 137.7, Lamentations 4.18-22, Ezekiel 25.12-14, and Ezekiel 35.1-15. All of these texts, if you were to go to them and look them up, they express this angry resentment from Judah about what's going on with the nation of Edom. E-D-O-M, of Edom. And they are trying to say that there's some sort of problem. It's, it's this vitriol, this anger, this resentment of what's happened. And it happens to be that all four of these, Psalm 137, Lamentations 4, and these two passages in Ezekiel are lining up in the writing of the 6th century, right around the time when they are exiled to Babylon. With all those factors in play then, and with a good dose of humility, I must admit, uh, I believe that it's most helpful for us to see this prophecy as spoken and written sometime around the date of the Babylonian deportation, the exile, somewhere around the 580s BC in that time period. That whole conversation, again, though, as you think about this, you're like, why does this matter? The reason it matters is it's actually going to help us put these things in place and see what's going on in the book as we go through it. It'll kind of give us hooks to understand what he's referring to and therefore what we should be looking for or what kind of things we should see in the past. In a sense, the people of Israel, of Judah, excuse me, are devastated. They're displaced. And at the hand of Edom, they have been betrayed. I'll get to more of that in a moment. 
That sets up the timing for our prophecy. But what about the author then? And who is the author speaking to? The name Obadiah shows up about 20 times in the Old Testament, referring to at least 12 different individuals. Unfortunately, none of them are the ones that line up with who this prophet Obadiah would be. Uh, again, that, that being said, it doesn't seem like it would be helpful for us. So what can we know about this guy? So, some guys who, who look at this, they're like, we have no idea. We don't even know if he's a real guy and this was just some sort of a name because Obadiah means servant of Yahweh or worshiper of Yahweh. I mean, what a great name. But it could be a title as well to explain the person that would take on this prophecy to deliver it to Judah. Um, we find out later out in our history that Obadiah's prophecy, though, what he's prophesied does come true, which means that he really did speak on behalf of the Lord. We talk about this back in the Pentateuch as well. This is how the Lord, you were to know whether or not the prophet was actually from God or if they were just doing it for themselves. Did the prophecy come true? And as we see, Obadiah's prophecy does, which makes sense because at the beginning he says, the vision of Obadiah thus says the Lord concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. Remember that Scripture is given to us not because some guys wanted to write their thoughts down about religion. It is God's word to us through prophets, apostles, and others. The vision of Yahweh, therefore, a vision of Obadiah is from Yahweh himself. We don't know almost anything about this prophet, but we do know quite a bit about who he wrote it to. Who, intend, who was this intended to touch and, and talk about? Edom, E-D-O-M. This is the only prophet whose prophecy is directly intended to be given to a Gentile audience. Now, don't get me wrong. There's other oracles within some prophecy, but this one is all about Edom. It's meant to be given to Edom. Um, this prophet is written, uh, also you might have heard of, if you work through the prophets, Obadiah, you're going to see other names, Seir, or the generations of Esau. Seir, as you will learn, is also a place where Edom was at. Also, you'll see the word Teman, T-E-M-A-N, another way to talk about the land that they inhabited. So we understand this is talking about Edom. It's obviously true then that the prophecy is for Edom, but it's also for those of us who are reading now. It was also included in the Hebrew canon. In other words, it's also for Judah, for them to read and understand, to continue to go back and see the revealed word of God about who God is and what he was saying to Edom. But all in that to say, this is given to Edom, directed towards Edom. So then the question is, what do we know about Edom? Well, Edom, a land also called Seir, was situated in a small but somewhat impenetrable position. Uh, a, a wonderful place of mountains and rocks. Uh, a very difficult place about s southeast of the Dead Sea. It was notorious because it was so difficult to get to. It was also difficult to live in. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't like some lush, beautiful place in that regard. But because of this, it was also very, very difficult to conquer in battle. And that way it was very secure or safe from their enemies. As Obadiah says, they lived among the clefts of the rock. This area that we're talking about is probably the one that we would, we would talk about and associate with Petra. You might have watched Indiana Jones. Remember uh, this where they are literally carving out these places. Or they're going to Petra where these homes are carved out in the side of the rock, Petra. That's what we're talking about here. doesn't mean, though, I'll just 
even though that would be romantic and it would be awesome if they actually were the ones that were there. Edom's probably not living inside Petra. That was probably done years later. However, it's the same place. This place that's up on this uh, mountainous area, it's very difficult to get to, very difficult for those that would want to conquer them. It wasn't a huge piece of land, uh, nor was it particularly productive, but it had the thing that every real estate agent knows is best. Location, location, location. Where it was was unlike any other place in the sense of this. Two major routes passed through the region. First, and you may have heard this, the King's Highway passed through here. But also this other north-south route that went through the place that they were at, and it went over through some of these canyons. And again, they had right and, in a sense, owned this area that they had to go through. These were trade routes, the main arteries east of the Jordan River. Think about highways like 95 or 8081 or some of these huge places where we have tons of, place of people going from north to south or east to west. To us, this is important to connect some of the important areas in our own country. But for these guys, for the surrounding countries in this day, these were the only ways to get the goods, commodities, all these different things from one place to another. It was the quickest route to go through Edom to travel these roads so they could get their goods, their spices, their wares from one place to another, all throughout Africa and through Europe and through Asia. These would all come through here. And if, you're, uh, if you've traveled at all, you know that when you are trying to go from one place to another, uh, you may have to stop somewhere and give them money to drive on that road. And usually, some of us get annoyed by this, but we realize if we don't do that, we're going to have to go way around, or there's no way at all to get there. That's exactly what's going on here. All these caravans that would carry all these different wares, all these different expensive pieces that, that another part of the country wanted, had to come through Edom. So Edom, taxes or tolls, they were, they were levied on all these caravans, providing the foundation of all of Edom's income. In other words, because they were in the right spot and they had the place coming through there, they could tax them and become quite wealthy because of what they owned. But not only were they rich, they, were also, they also had a reputation for having a quite an effective fighting force. They were able to put their resources together, understand their protection where they were at there on the rocks, but also come up with a, quite a good fighting force. And so with money and power and position and security, they became an incredible little nation of wise and clever people. And as Jordan and our reading pointed out this morning, quite a proud people as well. They knew where they were at. They had all the advantages in a sense. They may not have been the, in the breadbasket in the perfect place to grow everything, but they had all that they needed. And they're very proud of who they were. But as we know, this is not just some random nation either. I want to talk about who Edom is. We, we, we know who Edom is actually. They have a descendant that we know quite well. It's Esau. In Genesis 25, we get the story about the birth of Isaac's son, his sons, Jacob and Esau. Isaac prays that Rebekah, his barren wife, like his mother Sarah, if you remember, would have a child. And God grants his prayer and Rebekah conceives. But from the very beginning, things weren't going well. As soon as she conceives, there are problems. Inside of her, these two Boys are struggling. 
it says here that this is what's going on. I'm sure that each mother uh, prays when they are having a baby and it's difficult and there's a lot going on inside of them in their womb. But she gets noted here for crying out to God because there's some sort of battle royale going on inside of her stomach. And she prays and asks God, what in the world's going on? And the Lord responds in verse 23 and says this. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Rebecca has two warring nations inside her womb. And God has told her that the older will serve the younger. You know the story. The boys are born and Esau comes out both hairy and red. Important word. Jacob follows along, holding on to Esau's heel, already grasping for power. Uh, what will happen then to these two brothers? What kind of people are they? What's going to happen? We get some uh, understanding right away. A very important story falls at the end of the chapter, and it's worth reading. So let me read Genesis 25, 29 through 34. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, um, sorry, I skipped it. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear, me, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. When Jacob gave Esau, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate it and drank and rose and went away. Went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. These brothers are total opposites of one another. Jacob is a smooth, calculated, and ruthless man. And Esau is a rough, impetuous person who could care less, who couldn't care less about the important things of life, i.e. his birthright. Um, the, the, we must admit that Jacob is no saint in this story. We, we understand that when we think about this. But that isn't the important point to Moses. When Moses writes Genesis 25, he points out the attitude and disposition of Esau. He, Esau, is the one who despised his birthright. Esau embraced the present and, and the tangible things at any cost. It didn't matter to him. He begs for the stew as if he's on his last breath. He's like, oh, I just need this stew or I'm going to expire. I'm going to die. He's using these really strong words, right? He begs for the stew. If it lasts his breath, he's going to die otherwise. When in reality, he gulps down the stew, he stands up and he walks away. I mean, if, if he was really going to die, don't you think like maybe Jacob would have to nurse him back to health and strength? But no, he's, so, he's like overly dramatic because he wants what he wants and he's willing to give up his birthright. He doesn't care. He's like, what's it to me? I'll take this instead. Instead, he's shown himself to be, as Hebrews 12, 16 says, a profane or unholy person. The promises from God to Abraham, his grandfather, and his seed seem to mean nothing to Esau. He doesn't care. He will forever be known as Red or Edom. That's that red stew. In other words, his whole identity is known by what he was willing to give up his birthright for, this red lentil stew. This act was what defined him. He didn't care about God's gracious gift in his life. He cared about his own stomach. He despised his birthright. I wonder if um, we ever act the same way. Um, 
that we muscle our way through this life, getting what matters to us, and of course we're staying within the family to do it. What kind of things do we care about most? What are we willing to give up? Many of us have incredible Christian heritages that we have come from. And some of you as adults, absolutely, some not. But kids, everyone that's in here, you, it's, it's evidence that you are sitting here because someone loves Jesus Christ enough and has brought you to worship with the saints. So my question to all of you, all of us, is what will we do with the promises of God? Will we do what we want with it? Will we cherish it instead? Will we grow and listen and be blessed? Or will we despise it? Will we not care for that, but rather the things of this world that bring us temporal happiness? As we know, the story goes on, right? And eventually Jacob steals the blessing from Esau. And if you remember, Jacob uh, gets this blessing from his father that his father thinks it's going to Esau. And he says this in verse 29. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. That last part have a little familiar ring to it? Genesis 12, 3, this is exactly what was told to Abraham. Those who curse you will be cursed. Those who bless you will be blessed. Well, Esau, the despiser of his birthright, only gets to the leftovers of the blessing. But don't get me wrong. He did get a blessing. He does get something from his father. Don't miss that. It's given to him something. I, I recognize it's not the one that we'd want, but it is a blessing. His father gives him these words in 39 through 40. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. It's almost as if Isaac was giving him a preview of his life and lineage and what would happen to him. He did, in fact, live away from the blessing or the dew of heaven. He did live by his sword. And in so many ways, we see Edom serve Israel. And in all of that, although it's true, eventually, Edom broke free and lived in opposition to Israel for many years. The years following these events tell us much about the relationship between Jacob's and Esau's descendants and how they interacted. We know that Esau was resolved to kill Jacob after this event. If you remember this, he said, I will kill my brother Jacob. But at the same time, we can kind of understand he was pretty wily and a supplanter. But Esau receives the blessing that is given to him by his father. God does establish Edom. He does. They become a nation. He faithfully gives them what he had promised. In Deuteronomy 2.12, we have them moving into Seir. And we have them actually taking a land. In verses 21 through 22, we learn that Yahweh was the one that destroyed Edom's enemies. And therefore, he is the one that gives them the land of Seir. But that's not the end of the story. There's more problems for these two nations, right? In Numbers 20, 14 through 21, we find out that when Israel had left Egypt to go to the promised land, to do what they're supposed to do, they eventually come up to Edom. And they ask for themselves to be able to let through. They say, would you let us pass through? We're not trying to settle here. We're not trying to be against you. We're just coming through. We'll even pay you. We'll pay you for the grass. We'll pay you for the water. Let us come through. You would think that the brothers would allow the other brother to come through, but no way. In Numbers 24, 20, verse 14, we see that Edom denies Israel the right of passage through this land. Israel asks politely, but Edom would have none of it. They hated their cousins. 
But it goes on in, in uh, Numbers 24, 18, Balaam, if you remember that prophet, he predicted that Edom would be conquered. Later on, the kings of Israel, Saul, David, Solomon, all of them fight against the Edomites and eventually subdue their land for a time. You can find this in 1 Samuel 14, 2 Samuel 8, 1 Kings 9, and 1 Kings 11. All these different places, places showing that these Israelite kings dominated over the Edomites. In 2 Chronicles 20, Edom joins with Moab and Ammon and makes raids against Judah. They're ready to fight back. Eventually, they achieve their freedom from Israelite domination, but the war rages on. In 2 Chronicles 28, 17, we learn that during the reign of Ahaz, King Ahaz, Edom was finally able to break free from Israel's yoke and keep from being subjugated by them anymore. But although that we would think that this is enough, okay, finally, guys, you've had enough. Like, let's just keep the peace now. Like, you've, you've gotten your own land. You've got the, the blessing that God gave you just just leave each other alone, it goes further. They should have remembered what God had given to Abraham, the sign of circumcision in Genesis 17. They have a common heritage, these brothers. But instead, they reject the covenant of kinship with Israel and turn on them in their time of need. Amos tells us in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, that Edom's transgression against his brother just kept piling up and up and up. Not only was he wicked, Edom, he actually transgressed against Israel. He says three things, and he says, no, let me, let me, four things against them. And by the end of this time, you realize that God will not allow Edom to go unpunished. In Obadiah, we learn that Edom took advantage of the moment when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. Now, we're not sure exactly all of what happened, but we understand that Israel's brother Esau did not come to Jacob's aid in the time of need. No, the exact opposite. Rather, it seems as though they gloated over Judah and their demise. They rejoiced in their ruin. They looted their wealth and even stood by to help the Babylonians find the surviving runaways. I mean, again, who knows the area better than those that lived there? So the Edomites stand at these different crossroads and say, hey, here's one that's running away. Here's one that's running away. <laughs> that's the kind of, that's, this is the kind of cousin you've got. These are the guys that are lo really looking out for you the ones that are also descendants of Abraham. In short, Edom had gone above and beyond to violate every part of their covenant of kinship, their brotherhood. Esau was given the blessings of God, a different blessing, mind you, but a blessing no less. It was that he would serve his younger brother Jacob. And Edom did attempt to throw off his yoke, but even Esau never went as far as to kill Jacob. Think about this. They eventually get back together at the end of their lives. You remember this part? They end up living in separate areas, but even he didn't end up killing Jacob. But now, even the survivors that are running away from the Babylonian exile and captivity are being picked off and sent straight to exile, killing all the survivors. One author has said that the book of Obadiah is, in fact, a covenant lawsuit against Edom for its violation of fraternal relations. There's this sense of outrage that permeates the whole book. In verse 2 of Obadiah, the Lord says to Edom that they shall be utterly despised. You remember that word? Who despised their birthright? Same word here. That's what's going on here. Edom's actions are not just political opportunism because they have an opportunity to maybe get some free stuff out of the land. No, no, no. It goes much deeper than that. They are a betrayal they betray their brothers and strike against God's plan for Edom. 
Edom's actions are wicked. And this is the historical background then for us getting into the book and prophecy of Obadiah. It's into this context that Obadiah speaks to Edom. And at the same time, therefore, as we read and as Judah reads to God's people. So lastly, I want to do this. I want you to see then that there's a couple different um, themes that are going to run through this book. The first of those that you may already see that's pretty obvious is the justice of God. This book is a book of judgment. It's all about this. Many of us know that phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But in Obadiah, we have a declaration that there will be true justice for all humanity. Now that being said, repentance and forgiveness is possible. Consider another prophet. It's actually the next one in the line of prophets where someone is going to tell a nation, judgment, judgment is coming on you. And what happens to them? The prophet's name is Jonah. The place is Nineveh. They have an opportunity because they call out and said, maybe, maybe this God would have mercy on us. Perhaps he would save us. And what does God do? He does save them. This also, there's an opportunity always in the midst of judgment for those to turn and repent of who they have, what they have done and against God. Repentance is possible. The entire book of Jonah shows this, but when these good and gracious offerings, in a sense, are rejected, there will be nothing but judgment that is equal to the sin against God that is coming on them. So the first thing we want to see is that justice is in this book. Second, though, is the book of Obadiah shows us the sovereignty of God. Now, sovereignty of God is obviously a sweet doctrine to us. We hold and trust that he is over all. In this one, though, despite their wealth, despite their position, despite their wisdom and military might, strong, proud Edom is just another creature in God's world. He is still over all things. God is not aloof. He is not in some way unable to control the situation. He is all wise and he acts always according to his wisdom. And so we'll see throughout this book the sovereignty of God declared. The third, the last theme that I want you to see that emerges is the ultimate kingship and victory of God. We see it especially get towards the second half and the end of the book. Obadiah talks strongly about the day of the Lord. Um, Edom is only one nation among many, who, among all nations, who will experience the day of the Lord. It is coming. And in some ways, don't get me wrong, there are these lesser days of the Lord that come as judgment for different nations along the way. But there will be one day when God will be complete in all of his work of redemption and judge all nations for their treachery against God. He alone is king, and all of creation must bow to him. I'm going to finish up our time by doing this, something I love to do. I'm going to read the whole book of Obadiah. Don't worry, it's 21 verses. But it's an opportunity us now, as we have taken all of this in, to hear it afresh. There are going to be some confusing aspects. We're still not sure about the timing, and what is he saying? Is he referring back to something or forward? We'll work with all of that. But now knowing what we know as far as this introduction, I'm going to read all of Obadiah 1, and then we're going to pray and we'll be done together. So either listen or follow along. I don't mind either way, but let me read. This is God's word. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. 
you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you'd be have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of your of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand in the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the, stubble, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of, his, of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray together. God, we believe these words. And Lord, as we look upon them, we marvel at the fact that mighty, proud, incredibly talented, rich Edom was brought low, just like you said they would be. Lord, you are sovereign over all creation. And Lord, even as we are in the midst of 2021 with so many different world powers and misunderstandings and, and, and things that are going on around us where we're not sure what's going to happen next, some of these powers rise that are wicked. And we know, Lord, that there will always be a day of reckoning and that you will do what is right. I pray that you would be the divine judge, but I also, Lord, pray because of our own experience, that you would be a God of mercy. Would, be, would we be the ones that would declare and proclaim Jesus Christ as the King? 
Lord, would you use that word to open the eyes and the hearts and the ears of our young people, of our children, of those around us in our neighborhoods. And Lord, would you call many to be those that worship the King of all. We thank you for your grace and ask now that we would go forward in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.